Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, welcome everybody to episode number 48 of Collectible Live. Today is Sunday, October the 9th, 2022. My name is Jeremy Lee. I want to thank everyone who joined us last Sunday with our guest, Neil Rock. That was streamed live from Harrah's in Las Vegas uh, from the Beckett Industry Summit. Had a great time there, and thanks everyone who tuned in. But let's bring out this week's guest. He's a collector investor of high-end cards as well as a hobby entrepreneur. Let's bring him out. Karn Rye, welcome to Collectible Live. How are you? Good. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So we're going to spend the first part of this uh, episode having a discussion, a bit of an interview uh, between you and myself. Then we'll have a look on the Collectible platform at a few items going on there. Everybody else, welcome to the show. Welcome to the chat. Be sure to post your comments and questions, and we will get to as many of those as we can. Well, let's jump in, Karn, and start learning a bit about you as a collector, an investor. Uh, but actually, I want to I want to appeal first to your collector side and just ask you a very simple question: What is it that you love about sports cards and memorabilia? I think it's just the connection you have with the athletes themselves. When you collect a set, for example, and you look at, for example, a PSA set reg- registry, and you want to complete it to one hundred percent, just that chase of that collecting experience and even having a card that you're searching for pop up on eBay or you're scrolling through Facebook and you see a card you're really looking for uh, pop up randomly. It's uh, it's one of the, the greatest joys of the hobby. It is. I, I was recently describing to somebody how I can see a card appear on a marketplace at, or at a card show. And I will have an actual like 
physiological response to it where I will, you know, like the butterfly we talk, you know, we as people have butterflies in our stomach when we maybe meet the, the partner of our dreams or that kind of thing. I have a similar response card when I see the card of my dreams. Do, do you ever have a physiological reaction to cardboard the way I do? And, and if not, please don't laugh at me. I, I do. I think there's one that just appeared recently. I might, uh, I'm not going to share what it is, but I'll say it's, it's green in color. And uh, I definitely had some reaction when I saw it. And I actually think I know uh, one of yours that you had a reaction with uh, two years ago when you told me about that Gretzky exquisite uh, patch that you found at the national. I know for a fact that you had some sort of reaction with that one. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a, a good reminder uh, for me. You know, it's funny you mention uh, a green one because uh, green, and I don't know what card is for sure that you're alluding to. You haven't told me, I don't think you're gonna, but when you talk about a green card, oftentimes you think about green PMGs, also known as precious metal gems from Skybox Universe products, FLIR metal products, those sorts of things. And these are cards that are extremely, extremely uh, desirable, hotly pursued by many in the hobby, you know, and, and it seems like very few people will tell you that they don't like them. I do hear people telling me that they don't like them. They don't understand what all the fuss is about with these cards. And, and listen, I'm not picking on or speaking to green PMGs in particular, but any card really in that, you know, we all approach the hobby in our own way. We all like different things. But with that, I want to ask you, you're, I mean, you're a guy who you talk to a lot of people, you've got a lot of connections in the hobby. Do you find that a lot that people, whether you're new in the hobby or, or you've been in the hobby a long time, do most people follow trends or are we seeing more and more people kind of branch out and just collect and pursue what they like? Yeah, I think, um, I think you saw a lot of that during uh, the, the hotness of the COVID market where you saw a lot of people going for trends and uh, FOMO, right? People uh, had fear of missing out. And uh, you saw that you saw that with uh, prism rookies, for example, I think the main example is the bull bull prism rookie where it shot up. Uh, I don't know, like four exits uh, original price after a preseason game, he played 12 minutes in. Uh, so that was what you saw a lot of in that market. But I think we're shifting towards a market where people are starting to collect what they like. And you always had those true collectors as well during, you know, the COVID market and prior. Uh, you got to remember, uh, sports cards is nothing new. This has been uh, something that people have collected for decades. And uh, people have been collecting sets and collecting what they've liked for years. Uh, but I think uh, even the person that w came into the market as a speculator is starting to become a true collector. And what I like to say is once you get the collecting bug, it, it stays with you. I think a lot of people may have left uh, after the COVID market, but I think they're going to come back. I, I think there's going to be a certain moment of time. Uh, maybe they bought a card during the COVID spike. Uh, maybe they haven't bought a card since, but in a year or two, they're going to be like, hey, let's see what the sports card market's all about. And they're going to look at eBay or wherever it is, collectible and uh, they're going to look at cards again and make a purchase. I think uh, uh, that's what uh, keeps the hobby alive. It's collecting um, that chase, that uh, set building. And I, I think uh, people are starting to uh, collect what they like again. Yeah, I mean, collecting is the foundation of, of this hobby, this industry. And while there are investors in it and there are more investment vehicles, there's Fractional, which we're on Collectible Live right now. At the end of the day, 
I think that we need the hobby needs for these cards to have a forever home or an ultimate end user who will hold it for a long term, whether that long term is five years or 25 years or even longer. I think that's where that's what really provides the stability and the foundation for the values. People need to want to own these things versus people just wanting to buy them and flip them as soon as they can to make a profit. And hey, there's a place for that as well. And what I love about flippers in the hobby, and I use the, I, I use that term without any negative connotation. What I love about flippers in the hobby is that, and I do it myself sometimes too, I'll buy a collection to, to have inventory to sell at card shows. It allows you to find the right owner, find that right collector. A flipper is actually doing a service to the hobby if they are buying a, a card in one, in one region and selling it in another region. You know, if you're buying it in Northeastern US and selling it in California, you're, you're, you're moving the card from someone who may not want it to somebody who does and hopefully finding that card a good home. But at the end of the day, we need to find homes for these cards to sustain the values with which they are trading at. So, you know, you mentioned that whether it was due to the COVID spike or not, more and more people are starting to collect cards that they like. I've heard people recently say that during a bull market, you kind of collect what's on trend or not you, but people in general collect what's on trend. And during a bear market, people kind of revert to collecting what they like. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, uh, on the COVID spike as well, I wanted to make an important note. Um, we, we were in the market prior to uh, 2020. Uh, we started seeing cards raise in interest prior to COVID even started. For example, uh, Zion Mania. That was prior to COVID. And I remember LeBron James, Topps Chrome rookies uh, doubling in price prior to COVID. So uh, for me to use the word COVID spike, I think it uh, kind of connects to a certain time in the market, but it's not necessary that it was just because of COVID cards started gaining an interest. It started happening on its own. COVID kind of just accelerated a little bit more. But yeah, I completely agree with you 100% that uh, in a bear market, I think what result, what kind of leads you to collecting what you like is the money's not on the table anymore to quick flip. There was times in the market during that spike where you would buy something a week prior and the next week it went up two times in value. So it was tough to hold on to it, right? Um, obviously people have their own incentives in, in the industry and in the hobby, but uh, making two times your, your, your money back was, it was good enough to let that card go. But in a, in a bear market, I think we're all still in the market, but we're starting to spend our money on, on things that we actually enjoy, um, things that we are building as a set, um, things that we really want in our collection. Uh, so, yeah, I, co I completely agree with that statement. So you mentioned that it was pre-COVID that we started to see an increased like uptick in the, the, the just excitement and interest in sports cards. And... You mentioned the LeBron James Topps Chrome. So I recall very specifically because I, I bought a copy of that for myself, I don't know, in 2016 or 17, somewhere in there. I remember prior to the 2019 National in Chicago, like the spring, the, the months leading up to it, Gary V, I remember he made the comment that this, at the time the card was trading at about $1,250. I remember him saying publicly that he sees that card doubling in value to $2,500 in the near future. Well, it went way past that for a, a limited time. It's come back down to earth. 
trading probably around that $7,500 mark now, but he was right in that the card did go from about $1,250 to $2,500 very quickly. Now, the question that begs the question, did it go up because of natural market forces or did it go up because he's a very significant influencer who has the power to move the needle on a card like that? What do you think happened there? Was it was it him or was it more natural forces? Well, you can't move the needle if uh, no one's watching and interested in cards themselves, right? Uh, obviously, there's people that were interested in cards. Maybe they just needed a little bit of a, a kick to buy a card or, or pro- possibly uh, they needed an influencer to kind of speak to them on what they see as a future for cards. But you have to be listening and, and thinking about cards and searching cards to, to make that purchase. So I believe it's a, it was a little bit of both. Uh, the influencer, influencing does help. But at the same time, people themselves are interested in collectibles. They are interested in, in cards and, and the connections these cards provide. If, if you like Star Wars, for example, um, you're going to resonate with a Star Wars card. If you like F1. Lewis Hamilton, right? There's just everything in this in this industry and hobby for you to connect to. Look at Stranger Things. Um, there's people buying Stranger Things cards because they really connect to the TV show. And that's what TV shows are there for. They're there for you to pass time and make connections to the characters. And what better way to feel even more connected by having a piece of memorabilia or some sort of uh, card for you to have in your collection? Yeah. And I mean, if... Like, even if an influencer does bring people into the hobby, and even if a COVID sort of a pandemic type of scenario where people are now, you know, forced into their homes, forced to spend time doing different things, even if that, even if those uh, circumstances lead to more and more people discovering cards, so influencers, pandemic, you are going to find some people who aren't going to stick around forever in the hobby, but you are also going to find that those two, those two circumstances will bring people into the hobby who are going to stay in it long-term because, Hey, we all found it at some point and stuck with it long-term. So it's almost like, who cares how you get into the hobby? If you came into the hobby because you were following an influencer on social media, like a Gary V, or if you came into the hobby because you were reading articles on just on the general, in general, um, media talking about these record sales and and the fact that people are rediscovering their hobbies. You know, this is bringing people into the hobby or back into the hobby, whether you were in as a kid or not, or you're brand new. But now you're back and you realize that that collecting is fun. It it gives you uh, some. You can have some goals. You can you can collect. You can add things that bring you joy. You like to look at them. You like to display them. You like to talk about them. They become great icebreakers and having. When you have people over eventually post a pandemic and that kind of thing. So there is sort of a, a bit of a narrative out there where people are accused, where people do accuse, you know, social influencers, social media influencers uh, of, of bringing people in and then just kind of leaving them there to, to handle, to, to kind of uh, deal with it when the values end up going down, if and when they do. But at the end of the day, I mean, if I was brought into something that I loved because of following a social media influencer, I'd probably thank them for, you know, exposing me and reminding me about it. Make sense? Yeah, I think uh, I think you said it right there. I think there's, you know, there's two sides to it for sure. There's the pros and the cons. Uh, But for me, if I'm looking at it at a macro level, I, I enjoy what the sports car industry has turned into. And at the same time, I completely resonate uh, to the people that feel like, you know, um, 
uh, it's becoming too too mainstream, maybe, or you know, too corporate. I get I get it. I completely understand. But what I try to tell people that feel that way is, look how beautiful it is that you can speak to speak to so many different people about sports cards now. You don't have to be alone anymore. When I was uh, kind of growing up in my collecting ranks, I was the only person in my social circle that knew anything about sports cards. So I would go home and kind of just look at my cards by myself. Now I have people to talk to about it. I think that's uh, that's a beautiful thing. And I I understand the values get out of reach uh, for a lot of people. And uh, that's why companies like uh, Collectible and Liquid Marketplace and and Rally are, are there in the space. So uh, people that do want to collect high valued assets can or collectibles can can find a way to to own a piece of it. But at the same time, there's cheap cards still. There's still uh, there's cards that you can find that are very cheap. Uh, so I think that the, the direction should be pointed at how large um, the sports card industry has become, um, how many new avenues there are in the sports card industry. Look at all these like innovative companies coming out. And a lot of them are bootstrapping, putting their money in to, to create something of value in, in the sports card market. And I, I tip my hat to everyone that does that because um, at the end of the day, uh, by innovating, the space is just going to get better and better and we're going to feel more connected and it's going to become more mainstream. And like I said, at the end of the day, the more people you have to talk sports cards with, the better it is. Yeah, no, great points. And Another thing I want to just point out is that we've seen a movement lately, and I think this is tied into the fact that sports cars are selling for premium amounts of money. And we'll talk a bit about in shortly about how you dabble in that air in that in that uh, ultra high end market. But the high values tend to force us to look for reasons to justify these high values. And again, it comes down to two people have to want something very badly at auction to bid it up to a certain amount or in the in the in the area of fractional you have to have enough people that want to purchase the 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 shares that are being uh, issued at IPO in order to justify these amounts um i think one of the things that we use we being the overall hobby the greater hobby to justify it is that sports cards and memorabilia too i i find that you know i know you're a card guy i'm a card guy this is collectible live collectible offers memorabilia as well so i like to in include that in the discussion but sports cards themselves two and a half by three and a half square inches of canvas we are now talking about them as being works of art and i think that's i think it's legitimate because these were designed by people along the way from you know 1888 forward I love the stuff from the 40s, the Bowman, the Leaf sets. These things are the Gaudis from the 30s, true works of art, the play balls. I love I love them. What extent do you find, and, and even modern cards, Karn, even the modern, the precious metal gems that came out as far back as 1997, as recently as last month in Skybox, in Skybox Metal Universe. What how important is it for you as a collector investor to, to realize or understand or to accept the 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 assumption or, or just the position that these sports cards are works of art. I think they're, they're completely works of art. If you go at, go to an auction house, there might be two unnumbered cards, um, both with the same autograph of the same athlete and one might sell for more. And what, why does that happen? Cause uh, a, a, a certain collector finds one to be more aesthetically appealing. 
or it might look better to them. And I think that's just what it goes back to the core of what art is. If it's subjective to, to the collector themselves, they feel that they like that car more. It might resonate with them more. Uh, maybe it reminds them of something uh, from their childhood or, or the photography is in a certain way where um, it really speaks to them. And I think that's what art is. Art is something that kind of um, creates uh, some sort of value on the aesthetic of the card and, and some sort of subjectivity to it. So I, I completely agree that cards are art. There are certain cards that I don't like just because to me they they don't uh, they, they don't look great, right? So uh, if they weren't pieces of art, I would just buy it just because um, I think the value is going to go up, or because I like the player or it's serial numbered out of twenty five. But the fact is, uh, there are certain party products that appeal to me, uh, and some don't. And the reason that is is because um, the art might be different. So yeah. Completely agree. Yeah, well, so so I'm gonna uh, I'm just gonna share my screen for a moment. Take a look at a couple items on collectible that to me are art. Ones that I just called out. So first off, we have the 48 Leaf Warren Spawn. I've been told that this is a picture that looks like me personally. I don't know about that with the hat on, but in any event, I do love this card. I love the simplicity of it. I love the I love the name in the big white letters against the black background. This the color the the orange background. On the on the photo behind the photo of him himself, the the squared the square nature. This is not your typical two and a half by three and a half dimension card. I I just I love the Warren Spawn. I also want to show you guys the Jackie Robinson. Let me just close out of this offering and come into the Jackie Robinson here. You can see you can see it up here in the top corner there. But I'm going to come down. So this is a PSA three point five. If I if I uh, click on here, you can see the card. I, I mean, this is my this is probably my favorite sports card of all time, the 48 Leaf Jackie Robinson. I absolutely love this card. It's a work of art to me, and I think it probably is to, to you too, Karn, to most people. And then lastly, let's take a look at the Satchel Page, also from the same series. This is, I mean, this is a really tough card. This is almost this this card is almost impossible to find the the, the Satchel Leroy Page in any grade. It it sells for big money it's a it's i just love these cards i just and what i love about them is not only the 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 images and the colors but just the the technology we're seeing what was what was kind of hip with printing at the time so i love those cards when i went to collectible design when i searched i searched 1948 leaf because i know that i love the looks of those cards and what did i get on collectible i got 14 results with that uh, with that search so if anyone else agrees with me you can find some things on some assets on collectible Karn, let's go to the comments. We haven't done that yet. Let's say hello. We got TP in the house. What's going on, TP? Good to see you. Daniel Busby is here. Good uh, good evening to you. Albert Jones, Brian Adams, always great to see you. He says, he says, and this is about uh, 13 minutes old, this comment, but he says, that's why I open up boxes to get the cards out there. This He's, he's referring to the fact that the cards need to find a home. And this is why, you know, group breaking has become a huge thing, if not the the biggest thing in the hobby over the last 10 years group breaking has taken over uh where people just go in on a case or a box and you split it and you everyone gets their the cards that they happen to get allocated from that and uh what i love about breakers and group breaking is that it does sort of ensure that so many cards make their way out there brian adams is saying you know i'm opening personal boxes and getting them out there uh good little segue here to you karn how important has group breaking become to the hobby from your perspective? 
Yeah, exactly that, right? We need uh, we need the, the guys that love ripping packs and opening boxes to be doing that because that's how uh, uh, someone like myself who, who buys singles gets his cards, right? So I always uh, pay my respects to, to, the, to the people in the hobby that do that. And that's another uh, part of the ecosystem, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a guy that opens a lot of boxes, a lot of packs, uh, but I, I, I need guys that do because uh, if I'm searching for a certain card, that's the only way they're going to get out there. And uh, group breakers obviously really do help uh, with opening a substantial amount of uh, cards. Uh, and, and it never used to be like that. The group breaking aspect of the hobby has grown so much that pretty much uh, if there's an out of 10 card um, that you're looking for, for from a set, uh, you're going to see one in the first two weeks of release. So it's like one of my favorite times actually uh, in the hobby is when you're looking and you're looking forward to a set to come out. And uh, that first two weeks, just searching on eBay for the card you're looking for, you know, it's going to pop up. You just got to be, you know, diligent and and search eBay or Facebook or wherever it is uh, all day to find it. It's one of my favorite parts of it. And I, and I thank uh, group breakers and people like Brian to, to be opening those boxes to get those cards out there. Yeah. I just total total aside and unrelated. I just want to compliment you on your fine fashion sense. That ball cap you are wearing is just that is on point. That is on point, brother. That is that is a beauty right there. Uh, TP says, "Do you think the cost of boxes is a big problem for the future of the hobby?" I'm going to put that right to you, Karn. Look, yeah, I think uh, I think it, it, it has come to a certain point where it got really expensive for a lot of lot of boxes and wax that uh, kind of stayed at the pricing of the the highest peak but we're starting to see them come down I think it's it's great for the hobby if everyone everyone can enjoy it and that's why group breaking is you know something that's needed in the hobby I, I know it's a little like uh, controversial as well as some people hate the idea of group breaking but it allows everyone the chance to to um, get, get the cards and I understand that kind of uh, is the reason why the prices of boxes are also up themselves because group breakers are are buying all the boxes and packs and that's why there's kind of that uh financial situation going on it's it's in its own realm but uh yeah i think uh the manufacturers uh are doing a, a a solid job of kind of releasing products for every price tier but at the same time um I would like to see uh, uh, boxes come down in value a little bit more so you can go out there and, and buy them personally and, and open some packs just for fun. So, yeah, I, I agree with those sentiments. I do think it's important to note that the manufacturers do offer products for most price points. And however, even some of the entry level stuff like Panini Prism has gone through the roof because of the, just the values of the rookies within them. And so it, it's sort of a, it's tough to, to really, uh, to, it's to, really tough. Cause I've thought about this. It's like, uh, the reason why boxes are high in value is because there's interest. The group breakers are kind of in their own, like arms race for, for product. Mm -hmm. Right. And the reason they're in their arms race is because there's so many participants for that product in a group break. Right. So the higher the values of the boxes typically is because people want them and, do we want the interest to fade for the boxes to go down in value? I think I do want that kind of speculative margin to disappear uh, where um, 
we're getting upsold uh, by breakers in, in kind of maybe an unfair amount, maybe like that. But uh, at the same time, we want interest of sports cards to 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 remain high. But do we want manufacturers to produce more cards because that would lower box prices? But at the same time, do we want a lot of cards to be on the market? So it's kind of those situ- It's kind of a situation where. Uh, it's really hard to kind of know what you want in the, in the situation. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a problem, but at the same time, it, it shows uh, how healthy the sports card market is. And the fact is uh, manufacturers, even though they're printing a lot of cards, they're not printing nearly enough to make the boxes worth a hundred dollars each. People are still uh, willing to pay. Yeah. So a couple of things that, that I want to highlight there that you just alluded to. The first one is simple supply and demand, right? The, the, the manufacturers have really one lever there, which is to change the supply. If they, if they decide to print more product, well, we're going to see more, we're going to see more out there available at retail at a hobby, but you're probably going to see the overall values come down, simple supply and demand. So do they want to do that? I'm not, I'm not so sure if they do or don't. The other thing you mentioned is I think they do. I think they want to increase supply, but they don't want to decrease the value. But do they? How how much do they really care about secondary market value? Once their product run is sold out, they're on to the next one. And I think that they're starting to come around a little bit more and really give some attention and care to the future values of their cards once they're once they have sold out of them because it it, it speaks to and it and it really lends to the overall equity of the brand and the the confidence of collectors and investors to continue to purchase these things so i want to highlight that the second thing was you mentioned that you know the cost of a box is very high right now across the board and the value you get out of that box unless you hit something huge or even something unless you get a good hit or something that does cover the cost oftentimes you're going to come out with a, a return if this is how you look at it some people just open it to keep the cards but if you're looking at what your return is, if you were to go sell them on the secondary market, you might only get 20, 30% return on opening a box. So I, I, I raised this issue, Karn, because at the industry summit, the Beckett Industry Summit in Las Vegas last week, which I attended, Brian Gray, in his keynote address, which he does every year at the end, he talked to the, to the group, there were about 500 people in the audience, and he talked to them about how do you provide value for that gap you know if it's a thousand dollars to break a box of prism let's say and you get three hundred dollars in value how do you justify that seven hundred dollar gap between cost and value and he was talking about you know the entertainment value and the experience and he was speaking to lcs owners and to group breakers and i think it's important to note that the because the in this was the industry summit this was a b2b conference the industry is aware that this gap is there and they're trying to find ways to provide value for that gap. And at the end of the day, it comes back down to group breakers aren't having trouble selling out a product. Manufacturers are not having trouble selling out a product, even with these inflated prices we've experienced over the last couple of years. Yeah. And I think manufacturers are kind of intelligently uh, increasing uh, the, the supply of their cards as well. That's why you see uh, all these different parallels, right? The zebra parallels, the choice, the whatever. There's a I've lost count now, but uh, that's why they do it. They re- they remain their hobby colors there to to have as the the valuable portion of their set. 
and then they increase it with new serial numbered cards uh, that might not have as much value, but it increases the supply of, of the total amount of cards in a certain product, but it keeps that hobby gold out of 10. It keeps the, uh, the ones that we're chasing typically. Uh, so they are intelli- intelligently increasing the supply without kind of ruining the, the collector experience that we've had for, for decades and when we're chasing those rare cards. So yeah, that, that's all they can really do other than making even more cards, right? So it's it's a yeah. tough one for sure. All right, a couple of comments. Lashwine says, what's up? Fully agree. Uh, that This comment is uh, 17 minutes old, so I'm sorry. I forget what that was about at the time, but thanks and good to see you in the comments. Uh, Mitch says, the more people that are into the hobby, the better it is for everyone else in it. Personally, the hobby used to be so much more alienating than it is today. I, that's a that's a nice comment. It it and I think I think by the his comment about being more alienating than it is today. I don't like. I'm not sure if Mitch means that if you told people that you that were in other areas of your life, whether school, work, family, that you were into the hobby, would they alienate you because you were in this kind of nerdy hobby, being collecting sports cars, or is he saying that speaking to other people in the hobby that they would they would maybe alienate you and now people are more there's more social there's more events there's more networking and that so i'm not sure what mitch is getting at but either way i agree with both both of the ways that that could go uh charles smith says i agree with karn the box prices reflect macro demand you can't have high card values and low box prices. Yeah, these things work hand in hand. If the values of the of the cards in the boxes are going to go up, the price of the boxes are going to go up too. He goes on to say that the manufacturers have done a nice job of altering multiple price points for consumers. And sometimes it's out of their out of their hands uh, in terms of what happens. You know, there was the the question came up earlier: is that like is it good for the hobby uh, with the cost of prices uh, of the price of boxes being high? And we now know that you know. Fanatics is coming in with their exclusive licenses for baseball, football, basketball, and they've already eliminated one of the major distributors who GTS who marked up their product. So that profit, that that markup is now going to be gone. So will Fanatics keep it for themselves or pass it on to the consumer? I'm not sure. Time will tell. Any thoughts on that, Karn? Yeah, I think uh, I think Fanatics is kind of known for that <laughs> in their in their business plan. They they're known to kind of take over and kind of uh uh what's the right way to say it uh, to take the margin for themselves right they, they they take the margin and they they build their business around it and i think uh that might be that might be beneficial to the hobby because if this is a company that's going to innovate um the space and they have more money and more revenue and more profits to do it they're going to spend more money on the hobby, whether that be uh, create new relationships with athletes and, and TV networks, perhaps maybe the league themselves, where you might start seeing sports cards uh, on NFL Sunday. You might see sports cards being talked about by analysts uh, during intermissions of, of uh, hockey games. So those are the type of things that might take us to the next level of how mainstream and big sports cards can get. Uh, I think that a lot of uh, people believe that we've seen the peak of sports card values. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I don't think we've seen the peak of sports card lore being big in the hobby. I think there's a chance that sports cards and sports memorabilia 
might get bigger. It, it, it might get to a point where you see a, a, a prism card or an NTRPA as as a stat graphic for a certain player. Maybe instead mm. of the player's action photo, the NTRPA 99 pops up next to, to the athlete. These are all possible avenues where sports cards can go. So we haven't uh, hit the potentials of what could could happen. There's still ways to go. And I think Fanatics is the company to do it because they know how to be successful and you have to be successful to innovate. Yeah, well said. Well said. I think there is still a lot of potential. They they've been, I believe they've been quoted as saying they want to grow the hobby by 10 times. Uh and and what you just mentioned, you know, putting up a a sports card with the infographic during the broadcast of a game versus just a picture of them. Uh, is is a great way to just keep sports cards top of mind for people and to get more people involved. Um, I wanted to bring up this comment here. Uh, first of all, we'll go with uh, Lashwine says, I agree with everything you guys said, especially growth equals good for the hobby in the macro. I agree. Uh, and then Stale Prod says, any growth is good. Too much gambling is going, going on is what's keeping box, box prices up. Singles are tanking already. So, I, I mean... I, I by that comment, stale product tells me you're kind of new in the hobby in the last couple of years. And I made that comment because singles are up three times where they were in 2019. And you know, not all singles, of course, but I'm talking about some of the more indicative index type of singles. We talked earlier about the tops chrome LeBron James. That card in 2019 was selling for early 19 was selling for $1,250. It's now selling for 8500 or so. So we are, there are cards that are still up, you know, three to five times what they were. And that's a commodity card. That is not a, a that is not a rare a card. That is a very common card. So, um, you know, where we hear singles are tanking already, they're tanking from earlier this year, maybe a bit in 2021 and not a bit, a lot even from 2021. But when you, when you go from $1 to $10 and then you come back down to four, not so bad. Not so bad if you've, if you've had a long-term view of the hobby, which I know Karn has and, and I certainly have myself. Great comment, nonetheless, uh, Stale Pratt. Sorry, I called you a Stale Prod. Stale Prod, and thanks for joining. Uh, JC here, Karn, says, do you, see, do you see the divide between sport and non-sport card growing or shrinking? How does that affect long-term values of each category? Uh, you know a bit more about non-sport than I do, I would think. So can you uh, address this comment? Yeah, so I think uh, if, if by divide you mean the gap between values, I think it shrinks between sports cards and non-sport cards. Uh, and I think I, I say this all the time. Um, a lot of times we look at, for example, basketball cards going down in value, and we kind of equate that to interest fading or money going out of cards. But I truly believe that money is actually moving towards other segments of the hobby. Uh, and that segment may be non-sport cards. I think now we're seeing more collectible items and collectible cards in, in, in our industry. When we first kind of got into that, uh, that 2020 spike, every new consumer was heading towards basketball. Even long-term collectors that were in hockey were heading towards basketball. So all that money was flowing towards one sport. So that's why we saw these crazy prices like the bowl bowl or the Luka Doncic prism, but slowly over time you started seeing other segments rise in the hobby. Football was pretty low valued two years ago. Now you're starting to see football rise in value. Soccer in 2019, 
I know you know Court, Court and myself uh, in twenty late twenty eighteen, early twenty nineteen, we're buying up soccer cards, and it was a a space with not many people in it, especially um, collectors. There wasn't a lot of card collectors, a lot of sticker collectors, but a lot of money started moving into soccer cards. That money moved away from basketball to soccer. Uh, and now you started to see it with F1. Then you saw maybe even a little bit of tennis. Now you're starting to see entertainment cards. Maybe you see someone buying a Harry Potter auto I saw uh, posted uh, the other day, or you see Star Wars cards now. You see, you know, new TCGs. Before, look, in 2017 at the National, I said that the uh, I made a comment to my friend Lou. I said, uh, I think I might want a Charizard first edition over a Jordan PSA 10 rookie. Uh, he he called me crazy then, but Pokemon ended up becoming a collectible space with, with, with serious demand. Now it's not even just Pokemon. Now you look at Yu-Gi-Oh! Now you look at Dragon Ball Z cards. You look at MetaZoo cards. So the, the space is growing. It's, uh, it's to the point where there's so many different segments the money can go. Um, so I do see that divide shrinking because more people may be connected to a Marvel character now than than a basketball player. They might be spending their money on a Deadpool card because a Deadpool movie is coming out and they really enjoy Deadpool and they didn't have a way to connect. They were not really comic collectors. They're card collectors. So now I want the red PMG Deadpool card. So yeah, I completely, I completely think that the divide is shrinking and I think that's going to continue to be that way. Uh, I think that's where you may see um, more long-term growth is in those segments of the hobby. So I want to just, uh, you mentioned two people there. You mentioned Court, Court Jabot, who was uh, the guest on this show, episode number 32, for anybody who'd like to go watch that. You also mentioned mentioned Lou. I assume you're talking about Lou Papa. He was was the guest on the very first episode of Collectible Live, episode number one, that uh, was back in September of 2021. So direct some people to uh, to those episodes if you would would like to go check those out since you called them out. Okay, let's go to some more comments here. Uh, Contender Sports Cards on Instagram says, if the hobby keeps slowing down, which I don't think it is, I, I actually don't think it's slowing down at all, uh, do you think grading prices could drop even more than they currently are? Um, I mean, first of all, what I'm hearing is that prices are down compared to a couple of years ago, but the hobby is as active as ever that's what i'm hearing from breakers lcs owners uh marketplaces all that kind of thing uh, but but as for great um as for grading prices coming down i think what happened is you saw a run-up in hiring and capacity at the incumbent grading companies during the during the pandemic because they were so backed up they hired and now they have excess capacity so they're lowering prices to fill in their capacity that's all i think is that's what i think is going on uh, Hockey King Collectible says, so my 1600 count box of 1996 The Monkeys cards has potential. Maybe not. Maybe not. And because I don't know how many how many of people today care about the monkeys anymore. Nothing against them, but I really don't know. I think that's the one thing that that can impact certain certain cards is that you have to still have a certain level of notoriety and legendary status, iconicism to main to, to remain relevant two or three generations after when you were really relevant uh, at the start. Brian Adams says, I'm loving wrestling cards right now. Just started a small PC to go with my baseball PC. So speaks to what you were saying, Karin. You know, you said that football was a low value before. It's coming up now. Everyone was doing basketball. People were going from baseball and hockey over to basketball. 
when the values are running up. What we've seen since then, Karin, I know you you can identify with this, is that we've seen a lot of people who are basketball collectors coming over to hockey now, finding things that they like there because, number one, it's a great sport to watch, and number two, the cards are beautiful. So we're seeing the cross-pollination. It goes in all directions, and right now people are looking for these pockets of cardboard that they can they can collect and buy that might have potential to go up in value that they also enjoy. And I think wrestling is maybe like the epitome of that because it's niche, but it's fun for people. And there's a lot, there's a lot of opportunity in it. Make sense. Yeah. I think, look, like uh, if Brian was spending a hundred dollars on his baseball PC last year, maybe he's spending $75 on it now and $25 is going to wrestling cards. And that $25 is moving away from baseball cards. Uh, maybe the values are dipping a little bit on baseball, but wrestling is going up, right? So that's why that 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 comment uh, prior that the hobby is uh, uh, slowing down, uh, that's why it, it might not be or it, it's not, in my opinion, is because, yeah, the baseball cards might be going down. And this is just hypothetical. I'm not saying baseball is, but that money is moving elsewhere and that segment is increasing in value. So. At, at, for me, that means the hobby is is growing stronger with more things out there to collect. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Charles says, "Do you too feel that hockey may lag behind as it won't gain from the direct fanatics investment that may be enjoyed by the other major sports?" I'll just I'll just say that I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that any attention brought by fanatics to any sports cards will spill into other sports that fanatics may not uh, produce and other non-sport as well. Keeping on moving, uh, JC says, great perspective on availability of more parts of the hobby and enduring nature of non-sports cards. Very good. Greg Cohn works at Leaf Trading Cards says, will be interesting to see how fanatics perceives or may integrate grading into their business model. Yeah, that's a good point. We we heard when fanatics first, when it was first announced, which was about 13 months ago or 14 now, that fanatics kind of kind of scooped away the licenses that they wanted to have the soup to nuts service offering you know produce the cards open the cards grade the cards sell the cards for their for the customers i don't know that they're still going down that that path but it will be interesting to see how they integrate grading into their business model uh gross bro says i've been i've been hoarding hulk hogan cards since i heard there was going to be a movie smart i mean that ties into the whole uh the documentary effect that we've seen where you know we saw the the jordan documentary come out or the chicago bulls documentary come out a year and a half ago and that was right at no that's already two and a half years ago that was april 2020 and how that kind of coincided with pandemic and then the hobby went crazy from there Stale Prod says the hobby growth and stability is contingent on actual collectors, which is true. And this, I don't know if you were here the whole time, Stale, but we we made that comment earlier on, and I agree completely. It says way too many people now just here for the quick flip. That's what I see. Exactly. I don't know if, listen, there are people in for the quick flip, and that's what you see. And of course, you only see what you can see, but uh, we all see different things. And I see a lot of collectors that want the cards. There's a big movement right now. A narrative, a social that I'm seeing on various social media platforms where people are just collecting what they like again. And I think that's a good a good direction for people to go. Karn, you want to jump in with anything at this point? Yeah, I think, uh, look, if there's someone in it that's, say if you have 100 people that quickly flip, right, uh, that were here just because uh, they, need, they wanted to make money uh, off the industry, even if 
20 of them stay as collectors. That's growth in the hobby, right? So I think uh, there is a negative connotation of, of quick flippers and the, the guys that are just in the space or, or the ladies as well. They're in the space just to, to make money. But at the same time, I, I welcome them because I think that the hobby is great enough and the people are great enough to convince even those that have entered just to make money to stay and collect and have that collecting bug hit them and it's going to make them stay or come back at some point. And I, I rather have more collectors and more people in the space. So we have more people to talk to and more people to experience what we love with. So yeah, I agree with you that there are too many maybe perhaps, but at the same time, I think you can convert them to, to being true collectors and, and maybe they need to quick flip to, to get the funds to collect. Right. That's the thing too. It's an expensive hobby. And, um, one out, outlet to kind of cr- create value to to collect it, which is very expensive to do, is to flip cards. So, yeah, I, th- I, I welcome welcome everyone. So do I. So do I. Uh, Greg Cohn works for a card company. Being Leaf says the hobby isn't slowing down. People just need to be a bit more patient. Maybe the last few years have spoiled people a bit. Yeah, you think? <laughs> uh, Mitch says, do you guys have a concern for the future of hockey, both as a sport and as a hobby? as the cost of playing is getting to the point that so many can't afford to play. So you're talking, Mitch is talking, not talking about playing with sport hockey cards. He's talking about playing the sport itself. I, I don't know. That's a, that's a question that's bigger than collectible live, Mitch. Uh, so we're going to leave that for now. But uh, as far as, you know, if you were asking about the cost of cards, I would say, number one, if as long as the manufacturer is selling out of their, out of their, their, their product, uh, it's, they're selling them. So that's not an issue. And the cost of hockey cards. I mean, in Canada, we have the Tim Hortons, which is like your Dunkin' Donuts up here. And they have a set that comes out every year. You can buy a pack of cards for 99 cents. And I think that, you know, Upper Deck does a great job of having cards at all price points, including back down at that lowest level where you can really hit the grassroots angle and bring people into the hobby. And hockey Jeremy, hot. oh, sorry. I was going to say, I don't know how it is in Western Canada, but, uh, Ball hockey is growing substantially down here in, in Ontario as a sport. So that's a that's a cheap sport. Uh, ball hockey is essentially just a stick and a ball, uh, and there's a competitive nature to it. There's a lot of uh, uh, money that goes into it to run leagues here in, in Ontario, and the sport is growing like crazy. So it doesn't have to be ice hockey uh, to grow the sport. Even even ball hockey, for example, is, is something that can grow hockey. All right. Uh, hockey, hockey. <laughs> A lot of hockey talk says the hobby and the true hobbyist is doing fine. Like a road, some, just some potholes here and there. Yeah, that I agree with that makes good sense. And Brian Adams says that's about right. 75% baseball, 25% wrestling for the PC, but I open other stuff as well. Football, basketball, and celebrity uh, and more. Charles Smith says great column ball hockey. So true. Growing like mad. All right. Let, listen, the title, Karn, uh, I titled this episode, uh, you know, dabbling in the ultra high end, the six figure type cards without even consulting you on that. Um, But I do want to ask you, can you speak a little bit to the ultra high end space of the hobby, which you, I mean, you have bought and sold cards for six figures. Plus I I just know from being friends with you that you've done that several times. Can you speak a bit to like, because I don't do that. I don't, I don't spend that kind of money on a card. I'm not, uh, it's 
not that I not that I'm saying you shouldn't. It's 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 got to do with your 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 risk tolerance and all that. What's the psychology? In what goes through your mind when you do deploy a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars into one sports card, or when you do decide to sell a sports card in that six figure plus? Can you just share with people the psychology that you go through or the the thought process you go through, whether you're buying or selling cards at that extreme level? Yeah, I think uh, I think it goes back to kind of the first topic that we started uh, that uh, that visceral, just strong reaction you get from certain cards um, and certain cards that are that meet the the perfect infliction of rarity and demand. It's going to cost a lot of money. And uh, I think that the high end space is typically uh, something where you hold uh, for a little longer period of time. Um, you might hold it for five, 10 years. And for me, my mindset is always, if I'm going to be spending this much money on, on a sports card or entertainment card or a TCG card, I need to know that I truly love this card. I love the history of this card. I love what it represents. Um, it's an athlete that feels close to me. For example, one of the, the cards I bought recently uh, a lot of Canadians know about is the the Ovechkin uh, PMG Gold uh, one of one um, that just released in 2020 Skybox Metal Universe. The reason why I bought that card is because to me, Ovechkin was that player um, growing up that I watched. Um, I watched scoring goals, and PMGs were those cards that my brother spoke about from the 90s that he always wanted to chase and to and to get. So there's a lot of meaning to um to that card for me and then with there only being one um and being the only person that can have that card there's a special feeling to it there's a special feeling of owning uh rare cards that uh perhaps others uh can't get and that mystique and that just uh just that sheer passion for having something that uh, is that people want but can't have that kind of feeling of it so i think that's the coolest experience of ultra high-end cards but at the same time there are commodity cards and ultra high-end cards too and i think that's more uh a play with with uh short-term investing perhaps where uh you think a, a player is gonna uh, do well in a season for example i'm looking at lebron james cards again i feel like uh they've come down to a point where um, it's exciting again to look at his cards. Um, uh, you know that his, uh, he's going to perhaps break the record of the most points in NBA history. So you look at the accomplishments and achievements that LeBron James might have. Um, and where do you want to play? Do you want to play in a, in a system where a Topps Chrome, for example, there's thousands of them out there? Or do you want to play in, a, in, in an ecosystem where there's only uh, 10, 15, 25 cards out there? Uh, so, yeah, the psychology of it really is getting cards that uh, others want but can't easily obtain. Um, so that kind of gives you leverage in negotiations as well. Um, if there's another collector that really wants that card, he can't go to someone else to find that card. So you have uh, the, the ball is in your court. So you have leverage in a negotiation. So if you are looking to, to profit off of that card, it's easier in, in some ways to be in ultra high end cards. But at the same time, uh, you need to have uh, a collector out there that's willing to spend the money. So it is riskier as well. Um, so I think there's a little bit extra emotions involved when, when you're dealing with, ultra high-end cards and look if if 
you've built a kind of a, a network uh, of high-end collectors. It's a little easier to find a, a buyer for high-end cards, but at the same time, you need to be careful not to overextend. So uh, use your hobby money, for example. And like I said earlier, um, you might've got that hobby money by flipping, right? Maybe you flipped during the COVID spike and now you've had uh, enough value in your portfolio to go out there and buy that ultra high-end card. Uh, the one thing I say is when you're going to go after that high-end card, make sure it's not an easy one to obtain, right? If, you, if you're spending $100,000, you got to make sure it's not going to hit the auction houses every month, right? Because uh, if that happens, you're going to be stressed out every first week of October, every first week of September, because you're going to look at the auction preview and you're going to see that card come up um, month after month. And you're going to be worried about the, the prices every month. That's why the psychology truly is make sure you like the card deep to its core. That's significance. Make sure that you're even if you have a short term outlook for it, make sure you can and are willing to hold it long term. Uh, make sure you um, truly can handle the dips, just psycho like psychologically understanding that, okay, I may have spent $100,000 on a card. It might auction off for $70,000. do not look at it as a $30,000 loss. Uh, stick to what your first diligence on the card was, that long term, I feel like this card is going to be, be great. But on the flip side, it's not bad taking losses either sometimes. I've done it, right? So we've all taken losses on cards. So, you know, like it's just really kind of understanding where the market is and where you need to play and how much, how much you have to kind of play in the field, never overextend and just enjoy enjoy the cards that you can yeah. find. Thanks for all that. Good stuff yeah. there. I'll add a couple things. I want inform yourself make sure you know the population of the card you know uh yeah. the michael jordan ta uh, 86 flair psa 10 that has sold was selling for twenty thousand dollars five years ago reached up to eight hundred thousand dollars about a year ago and has settled into that like one hundred eighty thousand dollar to 180 to two hundred twenty thousand dollar range right now comes up every month several times we see a copy every uh, we several times we'll see it within different auction houses and that several times a month and we know the population of that card is about 320. That's how many are out there. And so that's that. while 320 doesn't seem like a, a big number, it's bigger than it seems because we see that card surface at auction every single month, which means that there's just more opportunities to buy it, which means that the you know higher supply means the price should come down. The other thing about these ultra high-end cards is that they do become somewhat of a status symbol for people in the hobby that you can now show them off at a card show. But the, it's a status symbol that has the, the effect of opening doors for you. Yeah. It opens doors. It opens opportunities for you because now other people come by. They see that you have these big cards and they might, you know, can open up and do some business with you in other areas as well. So there's a there's sort of a an intangible a benefit to having some ultra high-end cards and letting other people know that whether it's on you know sharing pictures on instagram or twitter or just by being at card shows and networking within the hobby definitely so, and just to add on that uh typically the people that are buying high-end cards or looking for them are wealthier individuals uh especially ones that are buying them for a collection and 
continue to buy ultra high-end cards just to hold forever, right? And uh, when you have cards like that, it, like you said, it opens doors. Uh, you connect, uh, you create relationships and connections that uh, are, are, are substantial and they can have some long-term effect. I think uh, that has definitely happened with me where I was able to create uh, relationships with people I, I didn't expect myself to create relationships with. And uh, that's because uh, there was cards that I had that uh, were hard to obtain and uh, they're valuable and expensive. And uh, that's the, another special part of the hobby and the ecosystem of the hobby. It's become so mainstream and cool that it, it, it connects you to a variety of different people now. And uh, I think that's uh, truly, truly special. It really is. The, the relationships, the friendships, the business connections we can make are, are uh, they're awesome. It's just awesome. Okay, we're going to run through some comments here because we are running short of time. First of all, I want to shout out uh, my old colleague, Cam Sebastian, who says, do they have ball hockey cards? I don't think they do yet, but you know what? They, they could come at any time. You just never know. Uh, hockey Barn says, basketball and football market is too big and vulnerable. Thankfully, hockey is and has remained steady over the up and downs of the past few years. I think a lot of that has to do with just how committed and passionate hockey collectors are. I, I kind of say that it's similar to baseball collectors in the, in the U.S., right? You're, you're not going to see people stop collecting baseball cards that have been doing it for decades or, or you know, five-plus years. Hockey, the same thing. I would say that hockey and baseball have the strongest foundations of any, collect, of any sports out there. Uh, contender says six figure sports card sales for modern players is insane. Injuries can ruin careers. You know, it's an astute point. I think it is insane that people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a second year quarterback. I, I think it is ridiculous, but at the same time, uh, there are current players who I can legitimize it for like Alexander Ovechkin. Tom Brady is still playing. LeBron James is still playing. So and I know Contender isn't saying this, but I just want to point out for people watching that I think it's mo it's reasonable to put a lot of money into a player who's still playing that could get injured that already has a Hall of Fame resume, like a Crosby, Ovechkin, LeBron James, Steph Curry, you know, the Mike Trouts, these guys. Tom Brady. Look, it comes. The only reason people do spend a lot of money on those cards, and look, I agree. I don't. I I, I speculate a little bit. I bought a Luka Doncic RPA, for example, or a few other bigger cards as well. But the price velocity of those younger players is just insane as well. Like a, a Joe Burrow card can go from 10k to 60k within two weeks. That's why people do it right or wrong. That is the reason why people do end up spending that large amount of uh, money on, on those younger players. That price velocity is unmatched. Uh, Tom Brady doesn't go up that much. Sidney Crosby doesn't go up that much. They're safe. They're organic. You sleep easier, uh, but you're not going to get that, uh, that 10 K to hundred K overnight. That's why it happens right or wrong. That's the reason why people do it. You're right. And so the, the conservative the conservative accountant in me does like personally likes to stick with those more established players. You're not going to see me going out and, and, and investing, risking, spending huge money on a, a young player. I, I'm just more apt to wait. Uh, Lashwine says here, six figures for a Kale McCarr type young star is risky. I think it is because injuries happen all the time. Uh, let's see. Fa this Facebook user says blue chip investments are just that. Typically, they don't ride huge waves that the five to ten thousand dollar cards do. Yeah, makes sense. Albert Jones says that Probstein, he's calling out Rick Probstein, has ten percent of the 
86 Fleer Michael Jordan PSA 10s, which I believe is true. And a yeah. uh, Facebook user here says, key comment, Jeremy, when you have big pieces, another bi- other big pieces tend to walk up to you. I mean, it's happened to me when I put big pieces out at a card show. I know it happens to you, Karin, because your showcases are filled with big pieces. Speaking of big pieces, there's one card on coming up on collectible soon that I want to. So I'm going to share my screen again here for a moment. And I'm just going to show you guys how I do this. So here is the collectible platform on you know, on the internet, on, on, on a regular computer versus an app. And when you go to discovery, you can then hit all these filters. So we are going to stick on the hockey kind of topic for today because it does, it does fit. I'm going to click on hockey here and it'll bring up all the hockey items and, and assets that are trading on collectible just to come. There's 11 of them on collectible right now. One of them is coming soon. We've been talking about precious metal gems today. Connor McDavid, 2015 precious metal gems. It's a PSA seven. It has a Mike Baker authenticated sticker on it, meaning it's very strong for the grade. Seven is not a huge, is not a very strong grade for a modern card, but it's important to note the precious metal gems often have chipping around the edges and corners. So a seven is is a is not a bad grade. But MBA, who is a uh, an old a grader who used to work for for PSA, uh, he has a service where he will tell you if your card is strong for the grade, and he says this one is. Let's come down to it. Here's a picture of the card right here. It's the green. The background is green. It is his rookie year. I consider it a rookie card, although many people don't, but uh, they call it a parallel or an insert. I consider this to be a rookie card, but hey, that's all. Again, that's another topic. Only 10 copies made. It's hard to see, but it's serial numbered here on the back. Now, Karn, what can you tell us about this card that will be coming up soon, soon-ish on collectible? Uh it's a it's a card that I'd love to have shares in. I have I have the blue and the red copy of this card, so I'd love to have a, the green or a piece of it. How how exciting is this card, uh, and what's your connection to it? Yeah, so uh, this card actually um, uh, at the Mint Collective, uh, someone from Collectible approached me, and they wanted a, a, a big hockey card on the platform, um, and uh, I I had my Connor McDavid green PMG uh, at the Mint Collective, and uh, I looked at it and I didn't want to, I didn't want to give it up, but at the same time, uh, as you know, Jeremy, I truly, really want uh, hockey cards to kind of get out there and uh, make record sales because with you, I believe uh, hockey is just the, the sport with so many passionate collectors in it, and I think uh, it will become a, an even bigger sport to collect when there are record prices and more platforms like collectible and and others like liquid marketplace and rally and get big hockey cards on their platform so for for me this this is a a huge card it's a it's a green pmg and obviously you see the kobe bryant there that's a 300 400 dollar card even in altered state and went for two million dollars in in a bgs 8.5 copy uh, a michael jordan would be a six seven million dollar card possibly today uh so pmgs have really created the, a, a historically significant kind of brand in our space and this is a rookie year and I considered it a rookie card as well. Um, and it's just a beautiful, minimalistic, nice looking card. Um, so on this card, the only reason it got a PSA 7 um, at the top there, there's a little bit of a, a, a foiling ch- a chipping. Uh, it's in the right in the middle. You won't even see it in a picture. 
Uh, it's only in person. It's a little bit uh, like indented a, a bit right there. Um, NBA looked at it. They said it could have been a nine possibly if that wasn't there. Uh, so they gave it a gold sticker. And Connor McDavid, spectacular player um, for the Americans out there. This guy is the closest you'll get to uh, a Wayne Gretzky in modern times. We have Sidney Crosby, who's a great all-around player, but he's not a flashy guy. Um, he gets the job done, but McDavid will literally take the puck from one end, go to the other end, go through everyone on the other team and score goals. And he does it multiple times a year. That's how special this kid is. And um, the Oilers are looking a lot better these days as well. And uh, this is it. This is the rookie uh, green PMG. And there's only 10 copies out there. And as Jeremy knows and hockey collectors know, it's increasingly difficult to to get cards out of people's collections. You never see uh, big hockey cards out there on uh, eBay or even uh, auction houses because people truly do keep them and uh, keep them in their PCs. So that's yeah. what makes this uh, special. For sure. It, it's an awesome card. And so it's going to be available on collectible uh, for fractional ownership here in the near in the near term. I'm not sure what the overall market cap or the the IPO value will be, but it looks like they'll be offering it $10 a share. And this was a card that Karn owned, but you're not retaining any ownership in it. You're actually willing to let the whole thing go. Often I like to I often like when when the consigner to collectible keeps retained ownership. It gives you it just gives me some faith that they love the card too. I don't really care that you don't have ownership in this one because I know that this is an absolutely phenomenal card that I would buy myself. So it's exciting to, to see when that when that does uh, start, when, when the IPO does happen on collectible for this card, I'll definitely be following following along with it. If anyone, if you're all watching, you go to the site, you can hit all these different filters. You can look for hockey, football, baseball, basketball. There's more filters here. I'll just give you a quick look at what they are by status. By asset type, by custom list, you can custom your list by era, which is pretty cool. Modern, ultra modern, and vintage. A real easy way to navigate the collectible platform. All right, we're over time, Karn. So I'm just going to do a couple of final comments, and then we're going to wrap this up. Actually, one final comment from Seb. Makes a really astute comment here. He says, most people are flippers and collectors. He says, I buy and sell, and with half of my pro profits, I buy PC cards. Like, it's so true. It's why I started setting up a card shows in the first place was to maybe make a few bucks so that I could subsidize my my collecting habits. And I think a lot of people do it and there's no shame in it. It actually does a service by moving cards from somebody who may not want to have it anymore to somebody who does want to have it. So flippers are the are really the ones who are facilitating people being able to expand their collections. Albert Jones says Karn with the heat as usual. And with that, we're going to wrap this up. We're already eight minutes over. Karn, final comments from you, and then I'll say goodbye to the crowd. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, let's uh, let's uh, keep growing this industry. And uh, hopefully uh, it gets bigger and bigger, and we have more friends and connections uh, in, in sports cards. I can't wait to see what we have in store this uh, the rest of the year here. For sure. Same here, Karn. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for making yourself available for the for Collectible Live. Really appreciate it. Everyone in the chat, thank you guys so much. Great, great engagement, great viewership today. So thank you, everybody, for joining. Really appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Have a great week ahead, everybody. And uh, this episode is over. That's it. Thank you again. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.